Hello, Bookstube viewers. I have a real treat for you today. First of all, I'm going to get to speak to someone without a mask, which is, uh, at this point in time, is really exciting. And also, um, the author I'm speaking with today was nominated for a National Book Award for Fiction in 2020, which might make it the only good thing that happened in 2020. So I'd like to introduce you to Disha Filiaw, who is the author of the Secret Lives of Church Ladies, and who's speaking to us from Pittsburgh. Welcome, Disha. Hi there. It's great to see you. How are you? you? Um, so I have to tell you that for the, how I came to your book. So I read about the book somewhere, and I got it out of the library, and I saw the cover. The first thing that you see is the cover, and the cover is a young woman who is just looking like someone is lecturing her or scolding her or telling her something that she has heard a thousand times before and she doesn't want to hear it. She's and over it's, it. It's just about two <laughs> seconds before an eye roll. And so the, the cover just, it, it's, very, it's very compelling. And then inside there are nine amazing stories, one each one better than the next. And I'm not the only one who feels this way because the other day I was reading um, the New York Times' summary of, uh, by their book critics of the books, their favorite books of the year. And I'm gonna quote here, Parul Segal, who's a daily reviewer from the New York Times said, I keep loaning out copies of Disha Filiaw's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies and having to order replacements. So that is like, wow, I don't know if you saw that or not, but I would, I, have done, I would have done handsprings because not only does that mean that the book was loved, but also they're buying more copies. So how bad yes. could that be? Yes, that was great to read. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about um, who's on the cover of the book first, because I have to know. I don't know. So the publisher um, licensed that photo from a photographer. And so she's like a mystery woman. And I keep hoping one day to get an email where someone has connected us because I want to know who she is, too, because it's just the perfect shot. Oh, and I would like have to know her and hang out with her. But also yeah. <laughs> she's got like this real, you know, churchy, like little bow tie in her shirt mm -hmm. so okay so that so uh miss she remains a mystery woman maybe after yes. she sees books still she'll raise her hand and identify yes. herself <laughs> uh, my next question is about pittsburgh so you don't originally mm -hmm. come from pittsburgh you come from jacksonville florida originally that's right but i've lived in pittsburgh longer than i lived in jacksonville so i'm jacksonville born and raised but i've been in pittsburgh for uh 23 years now so what's it like yeah. to move from the South to the Midwest? <laughs> so Snowfall, one of the stories in the collection, you know, has that first line, black women weren't built to shovel snow. <laughs> That's pretty, that sums up my experience here. After all these years, you know, I haven't uh, gotten acclimated to the weather. I don't like winter or cold. Um, but uh, you see a lot of the nostalgia for the South in the book. Um, so I still very much identify as a Southerner. Um, even though I've lived here a very long time and I've lived in different parts of Pittsburgh, it's a, uh, whereas when you live in like Jacksonville, Jacksonville is Jacksonville, you know, at least when I was growing up there and, um, and, uh, people were in Jacksonville proper. And so being in like different suburbs here has been interesting. 
Um, so I, you know, I don't know that I would call it homesick as much as I am nostalgic being here. So, so if you had your chance, would you go back and live and live back home? I don't know that I would go to Jacksonville per se, but definitely I miss the South. Definitely away from that. snow, that's for sure. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So I guess when people hear that you're from Pittsburgh, or one of my first mm -hmm. thoughts is about August Wilson, the playwright, of yes. course, because I've seen all the mm -hmm. plays in his cycle, and I think he's a great yes. playwright. Do you actually get to go to like neighborhoods that he's been, that he wrote mm -hmm. about? That must be yes. incredible. Yes, so the Hill District, um, which is where nine of his 10 stories are set, um, isn't far from where I am. And um, his family home is being restored, which is wonderful. Um, and uh, his, you know, he is still very much beloved here in Pittsburgh. So yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's an honor to be a part of that legacy by being a Pittsburgher. Pittsburgh writer. Other yeah. than that, the only I used to work for Mellon Bank, which used to be based mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh. And the only yep. other thing I remember is that there's a sub shop called Permanti, I think. Permanti. Where they stick Permanti the, Brothers. They stick the French fries <laughs> into uh, the sandwich, yeah. which I always thought was like a little bit overdoing it. And you'd probably, yeah, I never had one, but you'd probably eat one and then not eat for the next three days or anything yeah, like that. It, it's a lot. It's definitely something you take people, you know, when they're visiting as tourists because it is, you know, world famous. And you know, they put they put fries on the salads here too. You have to ask for the oh. fries oh. not to be on the salad. Oh, it's so kind of defeats the purpose of the salad, but that that's reminds a me of thing. a meme that I saw with this big stack of bacon and this little lettuce leaf on it, and it said, <laughs> "I'm really enjoying my my healthy salad." So, Pretty much. <laughs> uh, so um, I know also noted that your book was published by a university press. So yes. um, mm -hmm. I always had a question about university presses and how they mm -hmm. work and how um, how they publish versus like a commercial publisher. And also about it seems to me that a lot of Black women writers that I've spoken to mm -hmm. are academics mm -hmm. and affiliated yeah. with universities. Is, is, mm -hmm. So I guess to ask all those questions together, I think there's a, there's a clear path for black women at universities where um, mm -hmm. maybe in other careers like going into high tech or something, it, you, don't, you don't see anyone else there who looks like you and you don't, you don't see that anyone else has been successful. So you feel like, okay, I gotta be the first one to do this. But in academia, that does not appear to be the case. So I, um, I'm on a university press, but not in academia. And West Virginia University Press is, um, is really committed to the region and uh, um, Appalachia. And Pittsburgh is considered the Paris of Appalachia. So, um, you know, I fall under that umbrella. And they um, publish, for example, they published a collection that was sort of a response to all of the things that Hillbilly Elegy got wrong. Um, and so it's a really dynamic press. And a couple of years ago, my agent met um, the folks from the press at a, a conference. And so she kept them in mind. And when it was time to shop my book around, she thought about them. She thought it would be a really good fit um, because they aren't just, you know, academics 
um, but they do have a commitment to good storytelling throughout the region. And so, um, you know, if you had asked me, like, what about West Virginia University Press? I would have thought, no, I don't see the connection. But they have such a heart for writers in this region and good storytelling that it, you know, that it absolutely makes sense. And my book found such a fantastic home. We were so well cared for and appreciated there that I highly recommend it. Um, and so I think it's what you were saying about, you know, black women in academia, but also whether it's a university press or indie press, um, you just have people with visions that are very broad and that they want to hear good storytelling. And they know that, the, you know, that the narratives that we have to tell, that it's expansive, you know, that they think big, um, but they don't always get a lot of attention. And that's what the great thing is about getting the nomination for the National Book Award, not just for myself, but for a university press to get that and for a short story collection to get that is, you know, is tremendous. How long did you work on the stories for? They range. So some stories I worked on last year um, before turning into manuscript, the finished manuscript. And then there's some stories that are, you know, I started three or four years ago. And out of the nine stories, I'm going to ask you to do a reading from my favorite one. But okay. what's, what's your favorite one out of the nine stories? Oh, it's I know so it's hard like choosing between your kids, <laughs> your favorite kids. or your yep. pugs because you had two. <laughs> right. I will. I always choose Peach Cobbler. Um, I do love it. Um, and because it's the one that seems to resonate the most with readers and the the sort of the, the great part of that is that it was also rejected a lot before oh. the book was published because um, three of the stories were published before the book came out. And so I tell that story to people to say to writers, don't be discouraged because it's all subjective. You know, the story that is everyone's favorite was the story that got so much rejection. So when you your know? agent shops this around, do they send out like two stories, three stories, one story? How does, mm -hmm. it, how does that work? She shopped it as a partial um, manuscript. So there were six stories. Three of them had been published. Three had not been published. And um, it sold based on the strength of the partial manuscript. I decided I didn't like one of the stories that was in there, so I pulled it out, and then I wrote four other stories. And so for um, a collection, that's, you know, a, a, an approach. But if it was, say, a novel, you would sell it, you know, with a completed novel. Okay. Um, so now I'd love you to, because now I'm thinking about my favorite story, uh, Dear Sister. Okay. So uh, could you right. set it up for us and then do a short reading, please? Sure. So, um, you know, actually, because I'm going to start from the beginning, I don't have to set it up. That's okay. the nice thing about reading this part is it kind of tells you. Um, this is Dear Sister, and it is in the form of a letter. Dear Jackie, I've started this letter about five different times in five different ways. Finally, I just told myself, you're either going to read it or you're not, and it's not going to come down to how I write it. It's all about who you are and what you've been through and what, if anything, it means to you to share a father with my sisters, Renee, Kimba, Tashida, and me. Maybe it means nothing. Maybe your life has been just fine without our father in it, which I hope is the case. 
maybe it means everything and you have longed to know him and struggled because you didn't. Either way, you have a right to know that our father, Wallace Stett Brown, died last week of a massive stroke. As far as we know, you never met our father. The last time he saw you, you were an infant. If that's the case, and if it's any consolation, you didn't miss much. Tashida, our baby sister, asked me to tell you that. We're all sitting around at Grandma's house, and everyone is talking at once, telling me what I should write to you. I'm mostly ignoring them. They picked me to write this because I shoot straight and don't miss wor mince words. But I also have tact, unlike Tashida. Oh, in case you're wondering, we always just called it Grandma's house, even though Granddaddy lived here too when he was alive. He died of a heart attack in 2002, God rest his soul. You would have loved him. Everybody did. Always had a joke or funny story to tell. He was good people, just like Grandma. They lost their kids to the street or hard living one way or another, even though they tried their best to raise them right. But some people just go their own way, you know? Anyway, back to Stet. Tashida is right. You didn't miss much. Stet, everybody but Grandma called him Stet because back in high school, he wore a Stetson. Stet wasn't much of a daddy. Each of us girls had a different kind of relationship with him, none of them healthy, and none of them what we needed it to be. Kimba is the oldest, and she's the peacekeeper. She called our father Wallace, but she mostly pretended he didn't exist. Over the years, she's kept Tashida and Renee from strangling each other. She went to Harvard. Her mother, Jan, and my mother had been friends before Stet. But by the time Kimba and I were in elementary school, they had put their differences aside and raised us together like sisters. My mama said, y'all gonna need each other one day. Me and Jan aren't always gonna be here and you sure as hell can't count on your daddy. Anyway. Kimba lives in Philadelphia now with her husband and two kids, your niece and nephew. She's the only one of us with kids, and she's the quietest one. Like I said, the peacekeeper. She flew down as soon as Renee called her with the news, and she's helping out with Grandma. But I can tell she really wants to get the hell out of town and back to her life. Speaking of Grandma, I don't think Alzheimer's has fully set in yet, but she's on her way. She can't always remember our names, but she knows that her baby boy died. At 75, she's outlived her husband and all but one of her children, our Uncle Bird, who moved in to take care of her when Granddaddy died. Last week, after Kimba arrived, we met up for dinner at Grandma's. Her neighbors and the people from her church had dropped off food. We had food for days fried chicken, baked chicken, macaroni and cheese, greens, deviled eggs, potato salad, black eyed peas and rice, pound cake. So we were sitting there eating and whatnot and grandma says, which one of y'all pregnant? <laughs> she waved the chicken leg around like a pointer. I dream about fish about every night this week. We've been hearing about grandma's fishy dreams all our lives. With seven children, 19 grandchildren, including you, eight great-grands, and three great-great-grands, Grandma has dreamed about fish a lot. Somebody around here pregnant, she muttered. Renee, Kemba, and I just looked at each other and shook our heads. It's not us, Grandma, Renee said. Tashida hadn't gotten here yet. She's always late. 
Anyway, Grandma and her fishy dreams announced the existence of every one of her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. Except for Khalil, she always reminded us. You know Derek never bring that girl around until that baby was two weeks old. And you know she had the nerve to get an attitude because I told her she shouldn't have that baby out so soon with no shoes on his feet. No hat, nothing. I don't care if it was June. June 1986. But Grandma still talks about that girl and that baby like it was yesterday. Khalil is 19 and is a daddy his own self now. If Grandma dreams about fish, there is a baby baking inside someone in her life. Everybody talks about how she's only been wrong once, and they chalk it up to the fact that she was in the hospital at the time from complications related to her diabetes and was probably just having wild dreams because she was sick. But Jackie... I'm going to tell you a secret that only our sisters know. I knew that wasn't true. I felt more guilty about ruining grandma's track record in the eyes of the family than I did about the abortion in the eyes of God. 15 years later, and grandma's still complaining about how the sugar is even worse than them doctors realize messing around with folks' dreams. But I don't have the heart to tell her what I did. But this time, it's really not me who's pregnant. I know for a fact that it ain't me because I ain't been with nobody in almost a year because men are tiring and I don't have the energy. Are you married? Do you have kids? Thank you. I know that (laughs) the viewers and listeners are going to kill me for cutting it off, but that that will be the impetus for them to buy the book and find out what happens. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what got to me so much about this story, even above the others, but I think it was that um, explaining how grandma was and the background of the sisters and the father and a nephew and a great grand in a letter in the most beautiful way not in an email, not in an Instagram, not in a tweet, but in a, like an old-fashioned letter, which I love. Um, so I just think the whole, I, it's hard for me to describe how it made me feel, and so much oh. humor in it, too. Um, so were you brought up in the church? Were you, were you a church girl? I was. And the odd thing, though, is that I was sent to church. I was raised by my mother and my grandmother, and they sent me, but they didn't go, they didn't start going to church until I was in college. So it was really interesting that, you know, they had their own secrets and issues that kept them from going to church, um, but they felt it was important for me to go and to be, you know, raised, you know, uh, you know, churchy, I guess. But there's, there's a, uh, certainly a strain in here that, that is not too happy with the behavior of ministers. And yes. one, one specific <laughs> minister, actually. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so do you feel like, what do you think the influence of, the, of uh, going to church was on you growing up? So, it, it, you know, it, it was the women, the church women, I think, that influenced me more than the church itself or the teachings. And, I, and for that, I'm really grateful. Um, a lot of the things that the women in these stories grappled with, um, I didn't, it's not that I didn't grapple at all, but, you know, not as, as much. And so it, it more became part of the fondness and nostalgia that I have for how I grew up 
and thinking about those women and being curious about them and sort of I spent a lot of time growing up watching them and wondering about their lives and their sex lives, you know, when I became, was becoming an adolescent and just curious about all these rules and all the things you can't do and shouldn't do and what it meant to be a good girl and what you had to do to get into heaven. And then just wondering how that worked for these women, you know, the ones who weren't married, you know, did they masturbate, you know, did they ever break the rules and, and have sex outside of marriage? Did they like sex? I, you know, as teenagers, you have sex on the brain. And I was really curious about those women, it, the women in the church and the women outside of the church, um, because the women outside of the church seemed like they were having a lot more fun. But, <laughs> you know, but you're telling me those are the women that are going to hell, you know, how to choose, right? So those kinds of things, you know, my fascination with, with church women and, and just, you know, how they looked and how they spoke and how they carried themselves, um, really stuck with me. But when I started writing fiction 20 years ago, I wasn't thinking so much about church ladies explicitly, but it was more dissatisfied women because I was dissatisfied. Mm. But when I started sort of mining my memories and my imagination, those are the women that came forth. And so I gave my dad dissatisfaction to them, um, to them as, as characters. So, um, other than the community of women, you have sisters, right? Yes. So um, did your sisters see them, any of themselves <laughs> in the book? And did they throw the book at you after they did? No. <laughs> I was very careful to make sure that no one can point to this, any of these characters and say, hey, wait, that's me, you know? And so you can think of it as like there's pieces of people here and there. Um, one of my sisters is a nurse, but she's nothing like Tashida. Um, and so she, uh, she read, uh, dear sister and, um, she told me that she had blocked out like the whole, that whole day of our father's funeral. And she said, even though the story isn't true, she said, I felt like in many ways you gave me my memories back. And so oh. that was a great feeling to have her say that. So when you were thinking when you were younger and you would speculate silently in church about the lives of the women around you. How did that, how did that translate into writing for you either when you were an adolescent or when you got older? Mm -hmm. So when I started writing fiction, um, again, 20 years ago, I was a stay at home mom. I had a child, a toddler, a young toddler who did not nap. And so I was, <laughs> hands on all the time. And so I would carve out these little bits of time for myself to write. And, um, and as I mentioned, there was that kind of kernel of dissatisfaction within me, but I didn't feel comfortable writing nonfiction about myself and my life. Um, but I could give that dissatisfaction to a character. And so um, those women um, and their lives and my, what I wondered about, were they satisfied or not satisfied? It just was a really good match and a good way to explore what I was going through, but through the lens of these worlds that I could create. Um, and so the idea of women in the church, um, I always made these women like older than myself. They were very matronly and that kind of spoke to how I felt. Um, and they were you know, sort of had these lives that the rules said, this is what should make you happy. This should be enough for you. And it wasn't enough for them. And 
what do they do about it? And that was sort of the impetus. And I started trying to write a novel, novels first. I didn't start writing short stories until much later. Um, but that was, was where it started. So have you been back to church since you've written the book? And are you still <laughs> wondering or do you feel like you've written as much about them as you could? Um, gosh, no, I have not been to church since the book came out and since I finished the book. Um, I think, you know, there's endless, because again, if you think of it as not just church ladies, but more broadly dissatisfied women, I was just telling someone, you could write about dissatisfied women all the time. There's always a story there. There's always conflict. There's always something to discover there. So I don't know. Um, I, I will likely continue writing about uh, church ladies, perhaps in another medium. Um, I can't say too, too much about that, but there is interest in adapting the book. Um, and it's possible that my next book will also uh, feature a main character that's a church lady. Um, but I've been writing some short fiction in the pandemic that has is just church lady free. So I think maybe I just need to prove to myself I can write about something else. Um, so it's, it's a mixed bag that's coming down the pike. All right, well, I'm afraid we have to wrap up, which is, oh. you know, I, I was really tempted to just let you keep reading until you finished <laughs> Dear Sister so everyone could hear it. But instead, I'm gonna um, say a fond goodbye to you. Thank you so oh. much for being on the show. Thank you, Eileen, Congratulations, this is great. Congratulations, <laughs> Disha, for your nomination for a great prestigious award. Well worth it. And thank, um, you. thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Books do viewers. Um, if, if you don't want to hear what happens in Dear Sisters, then I really feel for you. But you should run to the bookstore or to the library and pick up The Secret Life of Lives of Church Ladies. Because I, I guarantee you that you'll find your own favorite out of these nine wonderful stories. Thanks and have a good night.